there was a report from the Global Startup Studio Network that said that 30% of companies that come out of startup studios um, have a high success rate. And 72% of the companies that go on to raise a seed round go on to raise a Series A. And if we zoom out a little bit and talk about the stat that 90% of startups fail, I mean, the success rate from startup studio is incredibly shocking, but also it proves the value add of a venture studio. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Radhika Minwani, associate at CEO, about their hybrid venture studio slash marketing agency model and some of the lessons learned while developing, launching, and growing a new product brand during the pandemic. My name is Radhika, also pronounced Radhika. I'm originally from Indonesia. I was born and brought up there, and I'm ethnically Indian. I'm a first-generation student, so when I had the opportunity to come to the United States for college, I jumped at the chance. I ended up going to college here in Los Angeles and graduated with a degree in entrepreneurship, business law, and theology. Clearly, I didn't know what I wanted to do, Um, so I definitely hopped around, and I decided to stay afterwards and join CEO as an associate. The role of an associate is definitely wearing different hats and hopping around, but I've um, really cultivated my domain expertise in supply chain and logistics and supporting our portfolio companies that way. Nice. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, that does sound like an interesting educational background. Like, I love when people combine degrees that shouldn't be together because it just makes your your approach to whatever you end up doing more interesting. That is the first time I've heard that combination <laughs> of degrees. So that makes you very unique. <laughs> In college, there were just too many options. And I was like, I just can't pick and d- decided to go for it all. I hear that. Yeah, I tried to double major at my university in business and design because I felt like they kind of go hand in hand and you should know both. But the business department at my school said, nope, there can only be one. If you you want to major in business, you can't have any other majors because we want you focused. So they said, just finish your design degree and come back for an MBA or something later. I definitely heard that from them. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I wish more school. And since then, a lot of design plus MBA programs have popped up. So I feel like, yeah, you should have listened to me, CSU, if you're paying attention. Actually, I think they might even have a combined degree now. But anyway, uh, we'll we'll carry on. So (laughs) thanks for that background. I know you mentioned CO very briefly, but let's dive into that a little bit first, because I think CO has an interesting model being both kind of like a venture studio as well as a an agency, like a brand marketing product, like all the things agency. So tell us a little bit about why that model is set up that way and kind of how it all works. Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack five years ago. Um, CEO started as the goal was to be a venture studio 
where we invest in startups and become co-founders with a partner who has a domain expertise in something and we kind of come in and help you develop that. So the original original idea was that we're just a venture studio. After a few, I guess, years or months in the making, we realized that it would be beneficial to have a hybrid model. Um, we started consulting with startups and quickly that we became an agency, hence this dual hybrid model. And essentially how it works is that we bootstrap our venture studio through our agency and consulting with startups. So I'm going to dive into the studio and talk a little bit about the agency. So on the venture studio side, what that means is that we have a portfolio of equity holdings in companies and we have a thesis on the venture studio side. So we focus on companies at the intersection of CPG, the purpose economy, and health and wellness. And then on the agency side, we consult with early stage startups on marketing and creative services. And on that side, we're industry agnostic. So there's really two ways to get plugged into CO. And we kind of combine this hybrid model so that we could continue investing and continue building. But also the agency has proved incredible value. Having the opportunity to meet just incredible founders at different stages has also been incredible. Yeah, that makes sense because with a venture studio, you know, some of those projects can take a while to get up and running. And especially if, if you're the financial model is built around having some high dollar exits to fund other projects, then that can take five or 10 years sometimes to build up that fund if you don't already have a fund. So having the agency that, like you said, bootstraps the services, but it also, I think, continues to give you deeper perspective in how things work out in the business world from a marketing perspective or whatever, because you're keeping yourself fresh by having your hands in a bunch of different projects, right? And working with different kind of business models and different entrepreneurs and different scenarios and different markets. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So CEO uh, provides a runway. Uh, we on the studio side, it's we invest in founders at the earliest stages. So mainly pre-seed founders and from that end, we provide a runway of about 18 to 24 months. And during that time, we really come in as an entire team and provide functional expertise from, you know, legal company formation, like at the earliest stages, even if you haven't formed a company legally, we can help you through that and then ideate on products and really take you all the way to fundraising and accelerate that process. Essentially, that's the purpose of a venture studio. But on the agency side, it's definitely it creates a sustainable balance financially so that we can bootstrap our investments. And since that runway is about two years, during those two years, we can also consult agency projects and meet founders that way. So there is the agency has really taken off in a way that I think nobody expected because that was definitely not the initial intention. But I mean, we're all grateful that it ended up that way. That's kind of how business slash life works, isn't it? You you have a plan set up and you start walking that plan and then all these other opportunities or obstacles or whatever come in front of you and you might find yourself walking down a different path that's maybe better or different from just what you planned initially. But going, being able to go with the flow a little bit, I think, helps you make, make you resilient and you end up finding where you really need to be instead of just where you thought you should be. Yeah. Definitely. And I think like that's so common with founders. Like I think there's very few founders that I've met that say, I had an idea in the beginning and this is what it was at the end. I feel like there's a bunch of iterations in the beginning of what they thought was going to hit the market and what they thought was going to hit product market fit versus what actually 
reach product market fit. So I think the purpose of SEO there is to help you accelerate that path to find product market fit as soon as possible and help iterate with you. And I think the great thing about a venture studio is, I mean, our entire team is really invested in your vision and bringing it to life. So if you fail, we fail. If you win, we win. It's it, We have as much skin in the game as you do. So I think that's something to point out as well. And that more direct partnership model is interesting too, because sometimes money just comes with maybe a couple connections, but it's often can just be money when you get an investor, right? They're just like, here's a check, go do the thing. Hopefully you crush it and I'll make money. But those investors might be giving checks out to tens or hundreds or whatever of entrepreneurs, hoping that one of them will pay off big. And it's kind of like the, you know, make a ton of bets and, and see what happens. Whereas with what you're doing, you're able to give more kind of direct support, like literally using your expertise to help guide them through the whole process and spend more time with fewer people. So is that kind of an an intentional thing with you all, or is it more about the size that you're at right now and it's better to focus? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. So it's definitely intentional. We try and deploy one to two checks per year, which is small compared to the VCUs deploying, you know, 25 to 50 checks. But it's very intentional that we deploy very few checks because our entire team is really invested and we want to be there at every step to help you succeed. There was a report from the Global Startup Studio Network that said that 30% of companies that come out of startup studios um, have a high success rate. And 72% of the companies that go on to raise a seed round go on to raise a series A. And if we zoom out a little bit and talk about the stat that 90% of startups fail, I mean, the success rate from startup studio is incredibly shocking, but also it proves the value add of a venture studio. And we're not able to provide our expertise with just a check. I think we're really, this is also from the founder side, founder has to evaluate how much stake they want to give up, of course, and do they need the expertise? Because if they're a little bit later in the stage, then maybe they don't need the concept validation and finding product market fit. So I think startup studios are really for founders at the earliest stages. And that's really the purpose of a venture studio. And going back to your question of focusing, um, it's intentional. And we do it like that because we provide functional expertise from product ideating all the way to fundraising your next round. So that takes time. And as you said, we are a small team. We're a startup as well, bootstrapping this as well. So as we bootstrap our venture studio, we can help you become capital efficient and bootstrap your startup as well. So it's definitely intentional. Gives more empathy that way too, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think we were talking about this earlier, but there's a saying in VC called a spray and pray with the check. And I think it's changing now. Lots of VCs are proving their value add and why they want to be on your cap table. But really just outlines the idea of giving a bunch of checks and really hoping for that one moonshot to make up for all of the companies that go bust at the end. So I think here at CEO, we really want to nurture our companies and try our best to help them succeed. Yeah, that makes sense. I was actually just at the 1% for the Planet Global Summit in was leading a moderate like a discussion panel on getting more creative with your giving and this was kind of the, the whole thing I brought to the table was you can write a check that's great a lot of nonprofits or whatever need some checks like funding is awesome but if all you're doing is writing a check 
you're depriving that organization from all your expertise and knowledge. And if, if you're aligning your kind of impact efforts with your brand that you're, then that probably means you have a lot more to offer than just money to those organizations you're supporting to those causes you're supporting. So I feel like this is a perfect analogy for that. Same thing with investment. A check is great, but if you're a brand new entrepreneur and you don't know anything about the industry that you're in, a check is awesome, but mentorship and guidance and hands-on help from people who know that industry and know what they're doing is 10 times more valuable and will much more greatly increase your chance of success because otherwise you could just burn through a bunch of money making mistakes, whereas you could get less money but with expert guidance and have much better chances to succeed. Absolutely agreed. So one of the brands that came out (laughs) of your venture studio is called Better Brand. Tell me how that came to be. Like, did the, was that a situation where you all came up with the concept in partnership with this founder or how far along were they in the process before they came to you? Yeah, so I'm going to zoom out a little bit. There's two different ways that a founder can, I guess, join CEO's venture studio. One is either a founder with domain expertise, which is what happened with Better Brand, a founder with domain expertise. Dr. Chris Jackson is graduated from pharmacology school and is a veteran turned CEO and wanted to expand his knowledge of helping his family to helping millions of lives around the world and his co-founder who is now under a pseudonym so at the crypto dog was really has domain expertise in nootropics with brain performance and Dr. Chris Jackson as well and they, they came with the domain expertise. However, the product ideation, the concept validation, all was in partnership with CEO. So the products that are now out there, that's definitely a collective effort. But that's one of the ways that a founder can come into the venture studio. And I think the other side of that is that perhaps a founder has a product or maybe an MVP, like the minimum possible viable product. And at that stage also at the pre-seed levels, we can come in and help you find that product market fit for sure before growing. So I think there's two different stages. One's maybe a little bit further on than the other, but Better Brand was incubated in partnership with CEO um, with Dr. Chris Jackson and his co-founder, The Crypto Dog. And it's, I mean, it, we started off as a D2C e-commerce brand and quickly fast forward about a year and a half later, we are now a retail brand, which is kind of where I came in. Um, mid last year, I was helping Better Brand develop their new supply chain, international supply chain for new packaging and to really help Better Brand become a brand for the shelves, for the retail shelves. I think that in the beginning that I think we couldn't see that far. I think we it was something that came to us and we were so excited um, to be a retail brand, hence the rebrand. And we really wanted to make sure that our brand was fit for the shelves. So that's where I came in and kind of developed that supply chain and logistics side of things. But right now, that's how it came to be. And yeah. How old is that brand right now? About two years. Okay. So it's pretty fresh still. So how has it been going so far? I think I seem to remember on your on your website, um, seeing some stats that it's uh, performing pretty well. So can you talk about a couple of those stats real quick? 
Yeah, it's going well. Touch wood. I'm superstitious, so <laughs> it's going well. Right now, Better Brand is in on retail shelves. The first store was Earth Bar. The second store was GNC. And just got our stats back that we are doing well on GNC and hoping to expand nationwide sometime this year. So it's become because of the strong direct consumer platform that we've built and having a subscriber model and really emphasizing that i think lots of e-commerce brands depend on the subscriber to depend on the ratio of subscribers to one-time purchases because that's so important for your lifetime value statistics as well so better brand did a really good job of doing that in the beginning which hence when we decided to take this leap and, you know, try and get on the shelves and do that jump, it worked out in our favor. So it's going well. And I hope it continues to go well and hoping to roll out nationwide, you know, sometime this year. So looking up. Nice. That's great. So the subscription model, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about like going from subscriptions over into retail, but I don't know if you even have this data, but are you finding that people who are currently subscribing like direct directly through the brand are they the type of customer that will also then go out and find you in gnc or is it more of that one-time buyer that you can convert to a retail buyer at some point yeah first i want to point out there so i don't that i don't have these stats but i do think that the consumers that we're finding that that, that do come to the retail stores it's really because how we've due to the rebrand that we had last year and making our branding, our packaging and all of our messaging and tone, voice, all of it, the creative side of things, really making that match a retail brand, which is why I think we stand out on the shelves. I think that these people are coming into the GNCs and the earth bars and seeing all of the collateral and the things that we've worked with our retail partners with to really make our brand stand out on the shelf. So I think due to that, they may be one-time purchases would be my assumption. And the subscribers that we have, they are, I would say that they're continuing to subscribe and we're continuing to see that ratio go up. So maybe it's it's more separate and maybe they're not very linked, but it's been working out. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just curious because I hadn't really thought about how that overlap would happen before because like I feel like once somebody's a subscriber... They're kind of bought in, right? They're, they don't need to discover you on shelf anymore. So maybe they would only buy you on shelf if there's a product, a new product that happens to show up on a shelf in front of them. And they're like, oh, I did, I'm a subscriber to their Better Lungs Immunity product, but I didn't know how they had this like mental clarity or this mushroom-focused product or whatever. I'll buy that, sample it, and then maybe subscribe to that too. Like I could see a late, maybe a little bit of that, but one of the values of retail is is both discovery and convenience and if you've already tackled convenience by having them to be a describe a subscriber then maybe it is that discovery is the last thing left for them but of course new customers that haven't yet subscribed or even bought anything i think it's great to be in retail you know i think when pandemic hit everyone was like oh my god i overinvested in retail and now we need to like get our online sales or direct to consumer up but what everyone's finding is that you need to have a combination of both really you need to own your own customer to some degree in your email list and through subscriptions and whatever else because that just creates some more resilience but without that retail component you're going to miss out on a lot of discovery and a lot of convenience maybe somebody doesn't want to subscribe but 
if you're on shelf, they will buy you at least occasionally, you know? So having that combination, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that it provides some credibility to be on the retail shelves and then people find you online and realize, oh, you know, if it provides that added sense of credibility on our formulation, on the development of our products. So I think that's an added layer of well, added layer to the awareness level. And that's what retail's really been helping with. So it's been quite a journey being on retail shelves and it's kind of crazy to walk into GNC and see better brand, but yeah, I'm, it's exciting, I'm excited for the road ahead. <laughs> Incredible. And That's one of my favorite things about what Modern Species does, which is help packaging, design, et cetera, for like these better for the world brands. And one of my favorite things is just walking into a store and, and seeing a brand there that I didn't expect to see there that happens to be something we've touched in some way, whether we actually design the packaging or we work with that company in some other way. But when you walk into a store and see, you know, brands in your that you've participated in. So I imagine that an entrepreneur who launched the brand must feel even even more excitement when they walk in and see their product on shelves. But even when you've just been involved with, from a consulting standpoint or a design standpoint, it's really exciting to see it out in the real world. Absolutely. And especially when you're part of the all of the back end of mm. that, you know, making you know sure everything that, that it took to get there. Yeah. <laughs> it shipped from here to there. And then I have the customs broker, it finally got through and then realizing, oh, it's finally on the shelves. Like, it's, you just feel you feel feeling incredible to see it on the shelves, especially because it can take so long. Like we, we design packaging sometimes that a year from now, maybe we'll see it on shelves just because it's got to go through so many different systems. And, you know, maybe they're launching regionally somewhere else until they can go national and so on and so forth. So I don't personally see it for so long. So that by the time I do see it, I'm just super excited. So with that said, this brand is two years old, aka launched at the beginning of a pandemic and has been growing and figuring out this retail thing and packaging and all this kind of stuff through the pandemic, which has had caused a lot of supply chain issues. So can you talk about, tell me like what kind of challenges you've come across by growing, launching and growing a brand through a pandemic? Yeah, we we started a little bit before the pandemic, but the second the pandemic started and we had better lungs and with COVID, there was lots of concern about lung health, lung support. It kind of took off from there in an unexpected way because I think we didn't Nobody could have predicted COVID, but with better lungs and with COVID, that's really when we were like, oh, we've been here for a while. And it was the perfect thing to, I guess, it really helped us grow. And I think from the supply chain perspective, some of the, I think I'll start with my greatest mistake. My greatest mistake was not accounting for enough time. We were going to, our first launch was an earth bar. And I put in a buffer of two weeks. I should have tripled, maybe quadrupled that. Our products came about three months late. So, Whoops, yeah. <laughs> the, yes. So, time, like the time accounted and the time I accounted for was completely off, even with consulting with the customs broker and the people who were trucking and all of these. I mean, it, the time changed drastically in the span of four weeks and the extended time was just, something we had to deal with, of course, but always it was something that I should have taken into consideration. And I kind of want to zoom out a little bit into what's going on in the world and how it's going to be affecting brands like us. So I want to touch on why the supply chain is so fragile. Um, There was a story last year about 
the ever given ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal and essentially it was stuck for a few days and we were losing that the United States was losing 400 million dollars per hour and nine billion dollars per day and that was because one ship got stuck and it was because of like such this I mean in theory like when you just think about a ship getting stuck maybe it doesn't seem that big but I mean the backlog that it created I personally think we're still suffering from that backlog it used to take about four to five days for things to clear in Los Angeles port and Los Angeles Long Beach is the biggest port in the United States and it used to take about four to five days maybe a week at max right now it's taking months so just like the backlog is something that I can't stress enough. And there's also a documentary on the Wall Street Journal talking about how the trucking, where there's a shortage of truckers, there's a shortage of kind of individuals in the middle of the supply chain that help you get your products to you. And I think there's also an opportunity for brands to be transparent about it. I think we have to give consumers some slack and I think they're really understanding what goes into their products and kind of the back end of that. So I think that's something that's been really surprising, um, being honest with consumers. There's a few CPG brands. I think one that comes to mind is the Momofuku Co. Uh, They have a chili oil and they basically put out a statement saying, Hey, consumers, we're going to be increasing our price by a dollar. And this is where everything is going. Like they laid it out really clearly for the consumer saying 33 cents is going to the labor, 33 cents is going to logistics and 33 cents is um, going to our ingredients. And it, it really was so clear. And they gave the consumers kind of information and transparency. And I think transparency is, I think, definitely undervalued, but also we have to give consumers slack that they're really caring about these things. So that's one thing. Yeah, that's beautiful, especially in the world that we live in right now where, you know, oil prices are going through the roof. So everyone's freaking out about how much it costs to fill up their car with gas. And you hear all this criticism about, okay, great. All these companies are making record profits, yet they decide they need to increase prices as well. (laughs) Just the things that consumers start questioning and, you know, maybe they've got really good reasons because, yeah, maybe they're getting great profits, but either they could eat through all those profits and then have to lay off a bunch of people or they have to increase price to kind of keep up with demand and maybe their costs have inflated as well and so on and so forth. Um, so I don't necessarily want to defend oil companies like maybe they are just raking people over the coals. But to your point, people just generally don't know what happens behind the scenes with the business. And just to be a little more transparent with it and explain what happens and why you're doing something I think is huge and consumers more and more respond really positively to that transparency and even vulnerability because I've had some of uh, our clients have to send out emails of being like whoops sorry like you know (laughs) we know we sold you these things or or told you this product was coming or or whatever it is but now it's not going to happen on time or now we're not able to fulfill it because xyz happened like something either within our control or out of our control like one of one client in particular i think they had their cargo ship light on fire and they lost a bunch of product right so like what do you do about that that sucks but you like promised a bunch of product to retailers and you promised a bunch promised a bunch of products maybe in a pre-sale or something to consumers and now they're going to all have to wait you know but there's difficult things like that that happen and you could just not say anything or you could just be the, a good person and be transparent and vulnerable and tell them what happened. And I think most of the time people respond positively. 
Exactly. And I think from the agency side with some clients that we've worked with, that's also a pre-order um, kind of, you know, product coming in, you know, six, 12 months. Those promises have fallen apart because of what's happening in the system, but also um, the ability to be vulnerable and just kind of be honest with the consumers and be like, hey, this is what's going on and really break it down for them as clearly as possible and show them that, you know, this isn't so that we can make more money off you, but it's really so that we can cover our costs and be a profitable business and continue to be a better for you brand and better for the world brand. Um, we need to do this. So I think the vulnerability is definitely a missing part of brands today, but it's something that I think brands have the opportunity to do and you know capitalize on. Yeah, because even if you don't have bad intentions with whatever it is, price increase or something like that, just not saying anything makes it feel like you're hiding it for some reason. And then it makes it seem like it's bad, right? So like, I feel like yeah. it's just always better to, to communicate whenever possible. And I know there's a million things going on and it's sometimes hard to remember to send out an email or put up a blog post or, or whatever about what's going on, but it's super powerful when you do. So you already touched on at least one lesson learned from kind of going through this, which is like take a step back and have a little bit more global view when planning out timelines. But have you had any other interesting lessons learned you can share with us in this community? Yes, absolutely. So I think the the second thing is diversifying versus finding a one-stop shop. So I think when I jumped into Better Brand and was helping, first of all, sourcing, manufacturing, and just finding the right suppliers to partner with, I looked to peers and I looked to industry professionals for advice because it was really my first time doing all of this. And one thing that I heard a lot was diversify and optimize for quality, price, and, you know, try and find the best manufacturer for maybe a small thing, and then have great relationships with every single one. And I tried to do that. So I kind of broke apart the packaging and broke apart the parts that we needed and tried to find, I guess, the best manufacturer for each single part. Boy, was I wrong. That was definitely not the way to go. I mean, logistics now to coordinate between five manufacturers and the expectation that they all arrive in one container at the same time, it's just an expectation that, you know, we can't have in this day and age, to be honest. So diversifying is, I think that it worked best when when the port times were four to five days and when there wasn't a huge lag and when the costs weren't as expensive. But now paying for shipment, especially internationally, it's just, it's gone up 10x the freight container costs. But especially if you're getting things internationally and having them shipped all the way over here, diversifying your supply chain might not, might not be the best option. I think it's, it might be more valuable and also provide you with that flexibility that you need with your manufacturers because you need someone who's understanding what's going on and being able to adjust with you, you know, whether that means scaling up and down your quantities and all of that. You, you need a partner who's really going to support you in that and be okay with your changes. So having a one-stop shop and finding a manufacturer that can really do it all for you is, I think, more valuable now compared to, you know, how valuable it was a few years ago. So that that's definitely something that, we've tried developing and 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 getting better at and going into like how this affects the later stages i mean the customs broker and the 
freight forwarding and all of that, there's a lot of costs to be uh, taken into account and having one shipment versus having five, um, the one shipment is going to be more efficient. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. And I think, you know, the old thinking I imagine with diversifying is so that you're not vulnerable to that one supplier having an issue or something like that. But to your point, there's pros and cons, right? Because then you've got a million pieces and one, one one hundredth of your product, like some little thing could not come through and it would break the whole supply chain. So it kind of sets you up in a similar position anyway of vulnerability. But like you said, if you have one partner that can do a lot of it, like they're equally invested in making sure this gets done on time and with all the pieces together as possible. So it's like, you know, pros and cons each way, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And I think I always say have a backup plan. Even if you're going with this one-stop shop, you need to have maybe a backup plan that's also a one-stop shop or, you know, maybe a few other people or perhaps previously to your diversified supply chain, keeping those relationships and making sure you can lean on them when you need to. But I think the the second part of that is always having a backup plan. And even though you are depending on one person for a lot, you can kind of incentivize the manufacturers to support you and be on their side. Because when you win, they win. We order more, they're happy. And, you know, it's kind of a vice versa relationship there. I imagine also it has to do with scale, right? Because if you're a giant brand or a giant corporation and with one order, you could max out a vendor, right? Then in those cases, of course, you need to diversify because there's no way to get the whole project done with one source. And you have probably enough staff people and enough money or whatever to coordinate all those different vendors and set up rules and make sure that everyone's supplying correctly, et cetera. But when you're a newer brand and you're only ordering so much in the beginning anyway, and you don't have the staff or manpower to coordinate hundred different vendors, then it makes sense to be more one-stop shop. So it, it could be like a flip-flop of scale. Like when you're small and you're getting started, you're a challenger brand and like anywhere you can streamline <laughs> the better, whether it's streamline shipping for costs or streamline efforts um, for your staff or anything else that makes total sense, I think. Yeah. And with scale comes more people. You could have more people handling different parts of the chains, handling those relationships, and you can actually diversify and optimize, which I think is the actual goal of diversification in the supply chain. So I definitely think with scale and with funding, lots of money to fund the all of the logistics costs, it definitely makes so much sense for larger brands, later stage brands to take advantage of all the opportunities that comes with diversification. I think we at CEO, the early stage brands, perhaps there is a trade-off there also to be made, which is also another point to striving for progress over perfection. I think that at the end, uh, the perfect scenario would really be to you know diversify, optimize, have the funding, have that team to really take advantage of the unit economies of scale that comes with ordering a lot. And before we get there, I think let's strive for progress and getting things to consumers' hands and being able to test and iterate on that, on what we have right now. And looking into the future, having that goal to expand and really take advantage of all those costs. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that progress over perfection comes into play in multiple ways as well, because a lot of companies in the Better for the World product space 
want to launch fitting like checking every checkbox for the how they would like to run a business whether that means launching with sustainable packaging or having the, the full lineup of products they envision or whether it's having the perfect supply chain or this or that you know there's so many things that you come to business thinking like this is the way it should be done this is the way I'm going to do it but then shit happens you know <laughs> like supply chains break down or the material doesn't work as well as you were hoping or the you're so small that the cost is through the roof to do the right thing there's or there's not the right option on the market right now for whatever it is you're trying to do and you can't necessarily let that hold you back from doing something that is still good for the world and better than what exists on the market so waiting until every little box gets checked means you're literally never going to launch your brand because it's impossible to check every box, right? There's even giant companies with tons of money to throw around that still have to set goals every year to improve because you can't do everything at once and you can't do everything perfectly. So um, taking more of that progress over perfection mindset, I think is helpful, not just from a supply chain or anything else standpoint, but from like everything that you have your mindset on for this business. You have to do the best you can with what you have right now, but have clear goals for where you're going to improve and work towards those uh, goals, I think. Absolutely. I think that, well, this is maybe uh, lots of brands want to have a, have emit the lowest possible amount of CO2 emissions. They want to find a manufacturer that is recycling all of their raw materials. And all of these things come with uh, funding, of course. But also, I think that there we try to put out the perfect brand out there before we actually launch. But I think the real, um, like the secret in there is that most brands iterate and they, before they find product market fit and they try and change and develop and redevelop until we really find that um, what's really resonating with consumers. So I think if we take into step back a little bit and take and maybe estimate or think about how many times we could iterate on this, maybe it's best to put in the minimum out there into the world to see if your product is really solving a problem out into the world and then developing, you know, beyond that. And being a profitable business is how we need to keep our heads above water. So having that be a priority, but also having the goals to really make a contribution to our environment and our planet um, should definitely be on the roadmap. Yeah. There's like so much packed into that. It's like, (laughs) It's like the philosophy you kind of need to have to run a business because there's always a new challenge. There's always something that's going to trip you up. And when you get hung up on everything having to be just so, you're going to hold yourself back so much. But again, I want to especially emphasize that knowing what your goals are and working towards them is still important because I know how easy it is to get caught up in like, okay, well, we can't afford that kind of packaging right now. So, you know, we're just going to do this crappy package that's like, by crappy, I mean like bad for the environment package. And, you know, it's it's cheap, it's flexible, it's like whatever we need, it'll get the job done for now. But knowing that you want to have something more sustainable or more recoverable, more functional, whatever, at some point, it's so easy to let that get put on the so much later to-do list over and over and over again because you have so many urgent things that you have to deal with right now, like supply chain issues or whatever that pop up. But making sure you're actually making progress towards that uh, bigger goal 
so that you do actually make progress because otherwise you're just being static, right? So I think it's emphasis on the word progress, not just compromise over perfection. That's not what we're saying. We're saying progress over perfection. Like you can't do it all right now, but still make progress towards it at some point. Yeah. And I think consumers are becoming more aware of all of this. I mean, if you've made a promise to them about how you're going to be a a brand that really puts good out into this environment and this planet, consumers are not afraid to leave you for a competitor and, you know, to call you out on that, especially if we've put out this letter in to our consumers promising some things. I mean, it's only right to do good by them and live up to those promises. So can definitely get lost uh, when funding and, you know, so many other issues are on the top of mind for founders, but making sure that there is a roadmap is definitely um, a way to get there. Yeah. It relates. I was just finished reading the book Atomic Habits, which is more about personal habits for, you know, building your life slash work slash whatever the way you, you, it should be set up for you to make progress and end up being wherever you want to be. But one of the things he touched on in the book was this I, this same idea of this perfection mindset of it's all or nothing. Like if I can't, for example, go to the gym and work out 45 minutes today, well, shoot, like I may as well not go at all. And then if I don't go today, crap, maybe I won't go tomorrow because like you ruined your idea of perfection. But in the book he talks about, it should always be about being aiming to at least show up every day, even if it's not the perfect workout or whatever. Like, so in this case, like showing up and making, taking steps towards that better packaging, even if it's not perfect, but make incremental steps, like get estimates, like talk to people, try some new iterations of your package or whatever, but be taking baby steps so that you're showing that you're making progress, but also just to like reaffirm to yourself as part of your brand identity, so to speak, that we are the type of company that does make progress towards this. We don't just say it. We don't just think it. We don't just hope for it, but we do it. And showing up is more important than being perfect, I think. And that goes back to this whole vulnerability and transparency thing too. If you don't talk about it at all, then A, your customers aren't there holding you accountable, but B, you're not sharing that journey, that story, and people might just make a judgment in their mind about what type of company you are and move on to a different brand they believe in more if you're not communicating some of those imperfections, right? So where it maybe sounds scary as a brand to talk about your imperfections, it's actually way better <laughs> to talk about them and show up as imperfect than to act like you've got your shit all together. You know? So maybe as we start wrapping up this convo, what advice would you have for other brands, whether that's brands that are just getting started, uh, especially during a pandemic (laughs) or brands that are like maybe shifting into retail for the first time, or maybe even flip side of that, since y'all are also kind of D to C subscription, any advice for brands wanting to get more into that? Yeah. So I'll touch on a few things. I think the first thing is maybe founders have an advantage starting in the pandemic because this is all they know. So they're going to be optimizing and accounting for the time like they didn't know what it was before. So starting now, essentially, you're already building in that ability to adapt and be flexible. So I think that's an advantage for any any brands and any consumer brands that are D2C or retailers or 
brands on the shelves that are starting and developing their supply chain. All they knew was this hectic supply chain that we are in right now. So they're definitely going to be optimizing for that. So that's, I think, an advantage. I think the second thing is whatever you've accounted for your buffer time to be, triple it, you know, quadruple it. There is never, you're never accounting for enough time. Whatever that number is that you've accounted for on your projections, on your financial model, on your Excel sheet triple it because you will not regret it. And just planning ahead, I think, is the the way to, you know, get ahead of all of this. And I think the last one that I think is really important is managing your relationships with really everyone in the supply chain from the person who provided the raw materials to your manufacturer to the freight forwarder who brought it all the way to the United States. If you have an international supply chain, to the, the trucking company that's going to be picking it up, to the 3PL who's going to help you fill out that order. And at the end, like through the shipping partners that you have to bring that to your consumers. I think there's so many parts of this that I think the end consumer, first of all, maybe doesn't have a, d- didn't grasp the entire supply chain, but they're definitely becoming more aware. So just making sure that you have the ability to, be flexible with every single person in that chain because where we are right now is you know having if you have the luxury to be flexible then you can really optimize for anything that comes up so i think just making sure that you manage your relationships from really every single person and i think that will it'll make consumer brands be more successful and also be, just be more efficient in really bringing that end product to the consumer and being on time and really hitting all your goals Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially with the triple your timeline (laughs) kind of tip as well. It's like because you are going to build flexibility in with all your different suppliers and vendors, etc., you need to buffer for that time because if one little thing in your supply chain throws you off and then all of a sudden you miss all these dates you promised retailers, that's bad. But if you told retailers a month or two later (laughs) than what you were planning, well, now you've got time in there and you can be a good customer to that vendor and help them get the thing done so that you can get your thing done so that everybody wins. Right. So it sounds like you should just be like a good human (laughs) coming into business and supply chain issues and just being kind of flexible, knowing that not everything's going to work exactly the way it should, but that's fine. That's, that's the way life works. That's the way business works. So just coming in with that expectation up front means you'll plan better you'll be a better partner to all your collaborators in this process and maybe even a better client to your retailers, et cetera. Absolutely. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that advice and for coming on and kind of talking a little bit more about this Better Brands case study that you have with CO. I really love the model that you guys are working on with the venture studio and agency hybrid. I do think that's kind of the way the future should go because of all the reasons we already talked about in terms of working directly with people, sharing your expertise, kind of getting in there and being partners with your clients. And then obviously having those agency services just builds a lot of that background knowledge and expertise and everything else that you can share with your venture studio partners. So really cool model. I'm looking forward to keeping my eye on it and seeing how it develops and seeing better brand and stores near me. Thank you for having us on, and we greatly appreciate it. We're excited to share about the Venture Studio model. And as you said, I think the goal here is to just be a good person, and things will fall into place. 
Totally. It's like learn by doing, but be patient with others that are also learning by doing, right? (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Radhika or CEO, go to co.io. That's S-I-E-O dot I-O. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>